welcome back to another episode of The Supporting Spirit. This week, I'm joined once again by Carl, who instead of being in my little 16 square meter studio slash room, is in Sweden as he's moved back to Malmö now, or close to Malmö anyway. How's it going, Carl? Yeah, it's, it's good. It's, it's a little bit different to do it like this, but <laughs> yeah, I think we'll get adjusted to it, but yeah. Sure we will. And just to perhaps build on from last week's conversation, are there any new or recent developments um, stateside in terms of the athletic um, protests and boycotts? Yeah, it's a little bit of update here, especially from the NBA, uh, as we mentioned last week about the boycotts that happened. And usually a lot, like, a lot of criticism is with these boycotts, like it doesn't lead to anything. It's, uh, it's just empty words. Like it looks nice in the press, but it doesn't. But actually now NBA, together with their players and the player association, have come up with some concrete actions they're going to take. Uh, so number one, they have, it's going to establish a social justice coalition a representative with players, coaches, and team governors that will focus on a, a, a broad range of issues such as uh, increasing access to voting, uh, promoting civic engagement, and also advocating for meaningful uh, police and criminal justice reforms. Uh, another thing they're also going to do is they're going to make sure, trying to now to work with their communities to make sure that their sports facilities and arenas can be used uh, for voting. And now in the members because they're bigger and it can take in more people and a lot easier to have social distancing rules set up. And the thirdly, they also now during the playoffs, they're going to run a lot more ads uh, uh, during the games that are promoting registration to vote. So that's three actions that are actually like concrete actions that are taking. Absolutely. And I think these are positive developments that we've seen and you keep alluding to the fact that these are actually concrete actions that are being taken instead of just sort of, you know, words. And um, it's, it's, it's a great thing to see, I think, in the sporting world um, because I think stateside and whatever happens in America often translates globally. And I think, you know, um, it's, it's a first step and a big step to not just players' rights, but obviously black athletes' rights in America and hopefully all over the world. Yeah, and I want to kind of connect it to the organization called More Than a Vote. That was uh, founded by several athletes, but LeBron James was one of the founders. Mm -hmm. That are uh, so there's black athletes, uh, also some black actors and artists that yeah. are working to fight voter suppression on different ways in the U.S. And I feel like it's just uh, an example of what we're talking about in our podcast: uh, uh, sport athletes taking actions. And I think they're doing a great job. And we, I think we might be able to like link the organization and just uh, about what they're doing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely try and get the, the link up on, um, on, our, on our pages, social media pages um, to, um, yeah, more than a vote. Um, and yeah, moving away from, from America, there's also been a different set of protests occurring. Um, yeah, because we don't just... <laughs> We don't just want to talk about the U.S. all the time. And Absolutely. usually in the media, like what's happening in the U.S. or in football, it's always getting this a lot of attention. Mm. But we're a podcast. I also want to cover maybe uh, things that happen that don't get that much attention as well. Yeah. That are still uh, relevant and uh, important to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, there's been a development because... Uh, as you know, we talked about before, but the protest in Belarus, in, especially in Minsk, uh, protesting the unfair election of uh, Alexander Lukashenko, 
he's been the, their president since yeah the, the country was established in was it 1996 mm. yeah i think yeah and uh, there's also and lukashenko have answered with the violence against the protesters and uh, even putting some of them in prison i think but now the the khl which is the russian hockey league uh, that is going to start up and Dynamo Minsk uh, from Belarus is playing in that league and they were going to play Jokerit uh, at their on the home game when it was going to start up but the game got postponed uh, mostly because the Dynamo Minsk fans the official sport group have gone out and say we're going to boycott our home games until our team officially denounce our president and denounce the what is going on in our country and also the team uh, the fans in Finland the official supporter group also come out and say we're going to boycott our games if they decide to go to Minsk. Uh, their sponsors have been out and criticized them. And even the minister that is uh, in charge of sports affairs in Finland did go, get, did go out and say uh, you should think about your actions and see what, and also what kind of consequences that would lead to. And they decided to postpone the game uh, because the Jokerit team actually received death threats, allegedly which is something we don't support. Uh, but it still shows that uh, in Europe, it seems to be more the fans. Are cri- the fans are criticizing the teams for, being, for not being political and not taking a stance, yeah. which is a big, big contrast how it was in the U.S. Because yeah. in the U.S., there's a lot of fans criticizing teams that they are political and they, they should not take a stance. So I thought that was quite interesting. It is interesting to see the contrast between, um, I guess, yeah, the, the I would say even the protests in both in 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 obviously both sides of the Atlantic, right? And the fact that, mm. as you said before, in Europe is very much fan or supporter led, whereas mm. in America it seems to be athletes led. But that's that's a whole different topic, and and I'm sure we'll have time mm. to talk about it in in our subsequent episodes. For the moment, though, for the moment, yeah. um, and just as an introduction to our topic this week, um, I'm mm. sure. A lot of tennis fans out there will know that the U.S. Open is currently um, at the end of its first week. Um, and obviously, people also know that the U.S. Open often takes place in New York, and the same as this year. New York at the moment is not a very safe place to travel to. It has recorded more than 200,000 cases, and more than 17,000 people have died. One of the, the bigger characters, I would say, in, in professional tennis is the Australian player Nick Kyrgios. And earlier this year, he criticized US, the U.S. Open officials for confirming the go-ahead of this tournament because for him, it was impossible to travel from Australia to New York um, without having to quarantine for 14 days. Um, and those of you who are familiar with Nick Kyrgios um, will know that this is not one of his more controversial statements. It actually makes a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense is the reaction that he, he got from some of the more senior figures in the game um take for example boris becker right former six-time grand slam champion himself he won the u.s open in 1989 um and he goes on to say this quote unquote it is a shame that the likes of nick kyrgios are not here either but i always expected him to cancel as i doubt he really loves the game um and you know they've got beef going back you know to the time when he coached novak Djokovic. but in any case i think that's a comment that shows how out of touch some of these senior figures are in tennis because we're talking about New York City where New York as a state in general has had over 200,000 
cases reported, right, of coronavirus, um, and just under 17,000 deaths. And here you are talking about the love of the game. Surely the welfare of the player, the health and safety of the players, takes precedence. And so today, we're very lucky to have with us an expert in social policy of sport, and more importantly for this episode, an expert within the field of athletes' labor rights. And we'll be asking him questions with regards to the, an athlete's rights, particularly in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, where a lot of them have been, yeah, in effect, put out of a job. But also the, the role of, of sport clubs and organizations who in recent years have been something of um, the neoliberalists' wet dream, really, with um, aggressive commercialization and um, essentially yeah, how they have a role or whether or not they do have a role in protecting the rights of their employees. Dr. Thiel Müller-Scholl is a research associate at the German Sports University here in Cologne. He works at the Institute of European Sport Development and Leisure Studies. He's also a lecturer on the MA International Sport Development and Politics Program. His primary focuses in terms of academia are in political science approaches to do with sport politics, the labor market, as well as social policy. Previously, Till worked as a research associate at the Institute of Economic and Social Research in the Hans Böckler Foundation in Dusseldorf, as well as as a research associate at the Max Planck Institute for Study of Societies, where he also did his doctoral degree. Till, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on our show today. Yeah, nice to see you, nice to hear from you, <laughs> and I'm very glad to be on your show. The first question we have for you um, with regards to the labor market, since of course you are an expert in that, um, is a simple one. It's to do with whether or not an athlete is that different from a regular worker. Let's say someone who works in Aldi with regards to his or her rights as an employee. Yes, uh, perfect. Very nice and um, uh, interesting question. Uh, let's start with one thing here that is we all know not all athletes are workers because most of the people who engage in sports just do sports for fun or for recreation or anything so no certainly not all athletes are the same as somebody who works in Aldi because not all people make their livelihood out of sports mm. so the people we're talking about are people who do sports the whole day long or as a, as a major part of their life and um, and then we have to, to look at the different types of sports that we have and that they are organized in different ways. We, we certainly do have athletes who are obviously workers, um, professional team sports athletes. Uh, the football player that you think of who is a, a pro at a, at a club in the Premier League or in the Bundesliga or in La Liga. Yeah. They have labor contracts. They are workers. Yeah. If, usually, if we think of them, they are very well-paid workers, but um, but they are workers because they mm -hmm. have a labor contract and they sign this contract that they offer their workforce in return for money, and mm -hmm. usually a regularly sal salary, mm -hmm. mostly on fixed-term contracts, which yeah. is a special type of work. Which is in Aldi, I'm not 
entirely sure, but I'm, I might think that most of the Aldi workers uh, might be part-time workers, but not on a fixed-term contract. So there are differences, Absolutely. but in general, these are regular workers. And so all the labor law basically applies to them. In, if, you, if we're talking professional individual sports, the case is different because most of the, these people are uh, self-employed. So, so they, they don't have an employer. They do their own business. They market their sports capacities on their own, which means that a small part of the labor law also applies to them, but everything that is somehow working on employer-employee relationships certainly does not apply to them. And then, at least from a German perspective, very important, many, many of the Olympic athletes are not really pro-athletes in the sense that they are self-employed and they, are not, they don't have an employment contract with um, any employer. They have a contractual relationship to their association, um, but there is, they're not really paid or at least not usually paid for their work. Uh, but they usually have some other way of receiving funds mm -hmm. from yeah. a government fund that funds sports or a, a foundation or a, depending on country, national systems differ in that, yeah. but they are usually not treated like workers, like employees. Sure. So they are not covered by labor law in many respects here, oh, yeah. which has a real impact on questions like uh, working time regulations or uh, standards of working conditions and um, and then suddenly we have amateurs who are not workers and don't don't make a livelihood out of their sports activities what we have to look at here is these different ways of including sports people who make a livelihood in sports um, into contractual relationships um, has a consequence for labor law and depending on national systems, a consequence for social security. Right. You know, if, if you talk about a, a continental European system, then pension schemes might be based on your employment relationship. Uh, health insurance might be based on your contractual relationship. Um, questions of uh, work-related injuries and who pays for them, that's all based on, at least in continental systems, usually based on your employment contract. And that's where we run into problems. If we have people who make a livelihood out of, out of their sporting yeah. activities yeah. and are not treated like other workers, mm -hmm. it might be totally unproblematic for the Ronaldos and Messis of, sure. uh, of this world. Yeah. But um, if we look at the sports world, then most of the people are not Ronaldo and Messi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as she says, it's almost like a, a gray zone sometimes for these athletes, if there are workers or not, and if they're are required for the, the labor rights or not. And specifically when talking about athletes in Europe then, because usually the EU uh, is in charge of the labor rights, so they are uh, the competence for the labor rights in, in the EU, while sports is more a competence for the member state. So can you just try to explain the, a little bit the complex system about athletes right in the EU? Like is it the member state or is it the, the EU as an institution that it's uh, in charge of it. The situation in the sports field and in the labor uh, labor field is almost similar. Maybe in the sports field, uh, responsibilities of the European Union 
are even weaker than in uh, labor law. But in general, the European Union in labor law defines minimum standards and that's it. Minimum standards meaning that if you are in a working relationship, you have a right to, to a contract. Mm -hmm. um, there is a maximum working hours um, directive. And so mainly based on the catalog of human rights and, um, and of non-discrimination. So the EU would define minimum standards of working conditions and of information and consultation rights that you have as a worker. Most European countries exceed these minimum standards. Yeah. And that's where the national systems come into play in, in labor law. So that you mainly have national systems of labor law that are also applied in sport as soon as the contractual relationship is defined as a labor contract or as a self-employed um, relationship where you also have some minimum standards of, what, of which degree of self-exploitations you're allowed to or should be avoided. Um, in sports, uh, responsibility goes uh, is even less uh, as we don't have defined minimum standards and it's mainly based on general market regulation and, uh, and recommendations and uh, sharing of best practices in the field of sports. Which doesn't mean that the EU doesn't do anything from this angle of, of sports. Um, but mainly sharing good practice and focusing on safeguarding health and youth um, within the field of sports. But this has, it had a, has had some impact on, on labor regulations in sports, mainly in keeping young players out of uh, the highly commercialized and maybe exploitative relationships. Um, which all leads to uh, the fact that it's the nation state who really defines uh, the conditions under which uh, commercial activity and uh, labor in uh, sports can happen. Yeah, yeah and, and, and usually when we, we talk about labor rights in general, we usually talk about uh, labor unions that have had a strong presence historically in, in Europe to kind of uh, push the agenda for uh, better labor rights uh, overall. But have we been able to see this in the sports sector as well? Like ha have labor unions have a strong presence there as well? No, but um, let me take a step back because I forgot something for the last question and yeah. it, it fits very well with the question about the unions. The main actor and the main player in the field of sports for regulating things and for running the show have, have for a long time in Europe been federations and associations. And even the European level certainly takes that into account and is basing most of their policy uh, policies in the field of sports on cooperating with stakeholders and mainly associations and federations. So whenever the European level wants to introduce something or wants to improve conditions or a situation, then it's usually done in this network of stakeholders, federations and associations. And the, the idea is to, to somehow come to a compromise and to a collectively accepted regulations that can be introduced by federations and associations. That's where we get to the unions pretty soon. <laughs> the last actor that we haven't mentioned yet and that 
that is important here is the European Court of Justice because the few really important uh, steps that European sports law and especially with regards to labor market has, has um, seen uh, have come from the European Court of Justice with the famous Bosman ruling where, which just established freedom of access in the labor market. We, we have all heard about it. and um, But also with this ICU um, ruling, which was not by the Court of Justice, but by the commission, but would have gone to the Court of Justice eventually, um, which ascertained the right of the individual self-employed athlete to market their uh, ability in some sports outside of the uh, events that associations organize. So this is usually these decisions open up markets. They don't really save people from uh, the usual uh, risks that, that you face in life, but they usually ascertain your access to a market. Now moving on to uh, unions in this, uh, in this field. Um, for there, there, is, there are some countries with a stronger tradition of unions in sports, mainly Britain, where you have, at least in football and in rugby, a longer tradition of uh, trade union activity in sports with the specialized unions for athletes in these sports, which fits neatly into their system of unionization because they also had specialized unions for, I don't know, welders or uh, for all trades. Mm -hmm which would not really fit into a German trade union system because there you have general unions, mainly uh, sectoral, but more generalized than saying football players. Um, and for, for example, in Germany, you haven't seen a football players union uh, for a long, long time. And the one associations that has developed now is not really a union in the sense that we would think of a union. It's, it's more like a professional association that has some services and so on, but it, it's not really engaging in collective bargaining and, and so on, because we don't have that in, in Germany. And if you look at another country like France, with a very strong union tradition that is, has always been based on government support for union organization, you have a long tradition of organizing players and athletes in team sports as well as other athletes into existing union structures and into the government-led structure of collective bargaining, which gives athletes there much more protection and much more integration into the system of labor law and social security. Yeah, I'm starting to lecture already. <laughs> no, no, um, it's, it's certainly a complex topic. Um, and it's something which I think needs a lot more explanation than we can offer here today yeah. but nevertheless you know we're trying our best and uh but i think one of the one of the maybe key issues at the moment perhaps for everyone listening in is this economic crisis that we're living in because of the the pandemic which is taking place all over the world and hence questions arise again um the basic questions of um the, the intervention of states needed um the question of austerity versus stimulus and in sport the question that arises is whether or not athletes are protected and in which countries this, this has happened or hasn't happened. And in your opinion, um, Till, what, what are sort of the basic roles of the state at the moment in Germany for athletes um, in, in this crisis? The basic rules? 
uh, basic role, sorry. So, that, so what, role, what, what, has the role, what has the state done essentially for athletes in, in this sort of coronavirus pandemic time? I guess what we've seen here, and for me, it's one of the conclusions of the whole situation, yeah. is what we've seen here is that the sports system, as commercialized as it may be, um, as, and as successfully commercialized and as much money producing a sector it has developed into, it seems to be extremely unstable under such conditions and reliant on government intervention and on government decision of whether something is possible or not possible mm -hmm. because associations and federations, even though probably the German Football Association would pride themselves as being extremely capable and uh, having reacted quickly and competently and uh, being a role model for all the other football associations in Europe, um, Basically, they were all waiting for the government to decide, can we play, can't we play? Um, and in the beginning, do we have to stop uh, playing? Do we, uh, do we have to play without uh, audience? What do we do if the audience gathers in front of the stadium? Um, which hygiene and protective measures do we have to take if we want to restart and so on? All these decisions about how to do this they couldn't really take them themselves and mm -hmm. they wouldn't have the expertise to do that. And they could come up with a concept, we would do it that way and they hand it in and the government says, yes, go ahead. Uh, you can do it that way. Or in some cases, the government would say, no, that's impossible. We can't, we can't really run the risk of doing this. And from the perspective of the athlete, you could say that this is where the government really has taken steps to protect them. Yeah. There's, uh, were the same steps that it, they have or more or less the same st steps they've taken in, in the treatment of schools or universities. But they also have created the shutdown and then came up with um, uh, hygiene regulations and uh, ideas about how or how not to run uh, the, the system. So the reliance on state intervention and on giving a structure on which the activity of a sports association, of a league, of a club can be maintained absolutely and that's that's where we see okay without giving this broader context basis embedding sports into societal regulations mm -hmm. sports is almost unthinkable even uh, even if it's commercially extremely successful the second aspect that we haven't fully grasped yet i guess but people are discussing it on podcasts and everywhere um, is that of how financially stable clubs and leagues actually are. If we have such situations of closing down for a few months, I was really struck by um, when we were talking about this with the, um, the financial head of the German football associations, when he told me if we have this shutdown until the end of the year, that we were in the middle of the shutdown when we had this talk, so if we have it until the end of the year, we will be we will be uh, bankrupt. The German FA will not no longer exist. And I thought, wow. I mean, we're talking a bit more than half a year, or maybe three quarters, mm -hmm. and then everything is over. German football gone. I mean, parts of the world might have a party after that. But, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, from from the inside perspective, you think, oh, but that's something here. And if you look at individual clubs. It's a lot worse. You look, quite a few of the Bundesliga clubs are in real financial trouble and very mm -hmm. traditional ones. Look at Schalke or um, mm -hmm. 
my favorite Werder Bremen, they're discussing their financial situation all the time because at the moment with pay cuts and everything, and we'll come to pay cuts pretty soon, I guess, um, yeah. uh, they still on the brink of um, not really being able to run the show anymore. And that's where governments can come in. It's a it's mm -hmm. a big discussion whether governments should, well, they, you can discuss whether governments should save Mercedes-Benz or BMW. Yeah. And you can argue, okay, there are many, many workers and the whole industry is based on that. If you start saving professional football teams, the argument becomes a bit more difficult because, I mean, there are some jobs related to this but um far from as many as in these big industries so is that really necessary or mm -hmm. is it uh, is that a good investment to save your uh, sports people but in the end that's what we're discussing and and some clubs and some um other sports actors have during shutdown resorted to government um money in terms of um, Kurzarbeitergeld, which, which is this, if you have to shut down not to, and you do, you're not supposed to, de to lay off all your uh, staff. Yeah. So they, they can be paid by the government, uh, yeah. a reduced amount, but and yeah. for a certain period. Mm -hmm. um, and there are clubs that would have been bankrupt already if they mm -hmm. could not resort to this kind of thing. So, um, so the idea that there is a need for government in, intervention I think it's it's much more present now than it has been before. The the idea that that you can run at least the big and successful pro sports completely independent of the society that they are based on, yeah. I think it's over now. Yeah. I mean, if many parts of the neoliberal thought yeah. are at least um, on the defensive at the moment, Absolutely. which I appreciate. We certainly appreciate that as well. <laughs> I think it's not just that the neoliberal ideas and thoughts that have come to govern our lives for the last couple of decades or so um, is being questioned. It's the fact that in sport, I think it's being dismantled in front of our eyes. Um, the idea that sport is this big, strong, independent commercial entity that is too big to fail is certainly being exposed here. And, and to link that into our next question. We talk about these independent, commercially driven clubs and the fact that, you know, their turnovers are almost similar to a lot of multinationals. We talk about the bigger clubs anyway, like Real Madrid and Man United and things like that. Um, but in general, what kind of role do sport clubs have in protecting their athletes, particularly at times like these, at times where a lot of their athletes, especially the semi-professional ones, like a guest we had on last week, um, when they talk about the fact that they lose their day job and they rely on sport to sort of provide food on the table, simple things like that. What is the role of sport clubs in the age of the pandemic? Yeah, it's a, a, a big question because mm. for me, I would say the question is in which way is sport special in this respect? Because you could easily argue that any employer has a, has a degree of responsibility for his or her employees and for their well-being, for their health, for their security, and maybe even for their midterm well-being. 
But if we are in a market society, well, capitalism and all that, then we usually argue, well, none of our business as the employer. Um, these people have a contract, they work for us, and if we don't need them anymore, we lay them off, and then they, they are on their own, and the market will take care of this, mm -hmm. which has never worked out well, but, um, but still, this is the bottom line of the whole concept. Sure. How, how, have, how have societies reacted to that? Usually with collective security measures, insurances or universal benefits or something like that. So I would say as soon as a sports club or a, a sports organization becomes something like an employer, then their responsibility is, is that of in, including their staff, their players, their athletes into exactly these collective insurance concepts. Sorry. Um, which, which certainly the pro teams do. If you, if you are on a top level professional athlete, then you pay into insurance funds or mm -hmm. you are above a level of income that you're not you don't have to do that anymore, but sure. because you do it on your own, because you have enough money to yeah, yeah. prepare for bad times. Uh, to this point, I think sports is nothing special. Uh, and, and the problem is all, only if they avoid having labor contracts and avoid being included into security systems, uh, then this is a problem. And you would say they have the same responsibility as at the, every other em employer and they shouldn't shirk from that. Yeah. Um, but, but sports people certainly have a few additional special risks that they face. Uh, they're, usually they're very young when they start this career. And they have to decide whether to invest in this or into an education, which is one of the big deals. If you, if you make somebody invest in your sport um, and you knowingly say, okay, we will have 10 years or something to exploit this. And after that, I don't care. That's probably immoral. Um, so the whole question of dual careers arises and I would see a responsibility of sports clubs and sports associations to take care of that. But I think it's not very contested that there is a responsibility about that. Not saying that every club does it, but mm -hmm. just saying it's probably not contested. Uh, then there's the whole health issue. Sport is uh, it tends to be healthy to a certain point, but as soon as we're talking elite sport, it's not. And and there is an extreme health risk, and um, and you should take care of that. And I think there is a responsibility for um, for sports associations and sport clubs to take care of that in both ways. In in you know. Um, avoiding these dangers and risks or reducing them where we talk about all the measures taken to reduce i don't know trauma and um, and all that and um, and in addition to that maybe additional people who are injured or um, cannot work anymore because of sports injuries have an additional safety net something like that i and I think that's maybe where the special responsibility in the sports sector comes in. And, and you could argue that, that a market-based sports system, a sports system that's highly commercialized where, where clubs compete and they, if they have the money, they have to decide whether to invest it in additional security or in an additional major player. They have a strong incentive to take the player and not the security because that's their business model. Mm -hmm. Then 
we're back to uh, collective regulations. So uh, no. associations or leagues or states might make them do it because once it's a general standard and everybody has to do it, it creates a level playing field. And this also question there is probably that has any employer in any industry introduced these kinds of things voluntarily? Mm. Yes, some have even in the 19th century, but it has never been the standard. They always have been the, the few that you would talk about as innovators and as, sure. I don't know, very charitable employ, employers. But, yeah. um, but, but to create the level playing field and to create a standard that is good for athletes would probably need a general regulation. And that would probably only come about if you have an athlete's union or an athlete's association that pushes for it. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it kind of goes into the next question you say about the yeah, representative of the athletes' rights and stuff. And many athletes now, when it comes to the pandemic, have been uh, talked about player safety and concerns that they haven't been taken seriously enough. Uh, but do you think athletes have enough power to express their concerns? Uh, when it, uh, for example, when player safety or other issues? Um, well, the, the short answer is no, um, but, but I would probably want to elaborate a bit on that. There are individual athletes with a lot of power, depending on their ability and on, on the size of their contracts and of their position as national symbols and so on. So you have a few with high standing and influence and who can very well take care of themselves and maybe even take care of some athletes um, needs and um, and some do some really use their standing and and their influence to improve conditions but most athletes as you say many of them don't make much money don't have that much of popularity and so on don't they just don't have the influence. And if you don't have a collective representation and no collective bargaining, very little voice within associations, then no, they don't have that. And um, that's why I guess at the moment, from a German perspective, even before the pandemic struck, this whole question of how are athletes represented it took so much of a, of a, push because many athletes well felt that their representations within the associations was was as at, at at best marginal usually they have some representation but it it's never decisive and it almost never has a real lever to push decisions in any direction and traditionally, these associations and federations have considered themselves not employers' organizations, but organizations of the whole sports, including the athletes. Uh, so, so it was very difficult to, to, to have this idea of we represent the athletes and they represent clubs' interests or um, associational interests. That was just a bit muddled and led to the creation of athlete organizations like Athletes Germany, sometimes also of um, pro sports unions in Germany, very, very little developed, but in other countries, 
a bit more. Um, and this, at the moment, I think we can see that it takes a serious takeoff, maybe. Um, if you look at the, the um, postponing the Olympics, for example, my take on it would be that so many athletes saying, I will not go there and I will not participate and of influential athletes and of mm. worldwide athlete organizations saying, mm. we need a say, we need to defend our interests in this. And it, it cannot all be about the commercial interests of the IOC or the organizing committees. This is our bodies that we sell here. So um, we, we should have a say. This is, I think, a lot stronger than it used to be. And mm -hmm. with, with the idea that this is threatening my health, um, maybe my life, mm -hmm. it, it becomes so much more urgent that it's much easier to organize around this question. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I find fascinating as well because uh, comparison to like the, in the U.S. where the labor unions have had a strong presence in sports, especially in the, in the big leagues, and they have had a major impact in securing uh, the rights for the athletes during this pandemic they have, with their collective bargaining of player safety, uh, payments for the players, and also that players have the option to opt out from the season without losing any pay. Etc. But then, as you say, it's almost more on an individual basis here in Europe that if you have the power, then you can represent yourself. But at the, there's no strong collective uh, organization representing uh, your interest, if I understood you correctly. It's yes, uh, uh, depending on the country. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in France, things are different and um, like usually, but um, <laughs> but um, I mean, they, they, there is something like American exceptionalism about uh, about the strength of player unions in pro pro team sports in uh, in the US. Mm. And, and that, that has historically developed the way it has developed because it was so commercial from the start and it was not developed out of associations of sports people who were usually amateurs, but it was just a commercial endeavor. And slightly similar to Britain, where organizing leagues also was a commercial endeavor very early on. Um, so the idea, this is a commercial endeavor and I'm working there and I could organize a union to engage in collective bargaining was much closer to uh, sports people there. And, and once you have this structure, you can use it in a, this kind of a path dependency argument. You know, you have an existing structure and then you can use it in a new situation like a pandemic. And if you don't have this existing structure, like in Germany and quite a few other European countries, um, then the question is, can I really, do I have the power to rebuild and from scratch something like that and then use it? Or do I use other ways, like just going public as somebody who's visible? Um, so, but the argument would be maybe it's a starting point for some of these organizations to become stronger and to act much mm -hmm. more like a union but the way to collective bargaining i think is still way to go for for germany at least um what we have to probably see as a positive side at least for the german bundesliga we we can acknowledge that there was the official message by the fa and the league that no player can be forced to play 
and there, there were players who said, no, I will not play because I, I don't know, I have a special risk in my family and I don't want to run this risk and so on. And that was not punished and it was not supposed to be punished. Um, but, and that's maybe a point about this whole question of health security and standards. Um, within market contexts, it's a huge problem to to put this burden of taking care of security onto the individual worker. That's, it's in a factory, that's a problem. And in sports, it's a problem too, because you always have to make this decision. Can I, what about my career? What about my money? Do I depend on this for the moment and for the midterm? So I might give up on a certain level of security and safety and in return make money at the moment. And this is a choice that you cannot really put on to people who need the money to live off of it. So, so I guess there is a need for collective representation and for collective regulation in, in exactly these fields. And that's why we feel it so much in, in, in the context of pand pandemics. Sure. Nola, and, and on that point, you saying that there is the need for a lot of, obviously a lot of individuals, a lot of sports people to, to, be, to be employed in a sporting sense, to have, be paid to play sport. Um, and in your humble opinion, do you think short sport should be played during the pandemic? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, coming from the angle anyway, you just mentioned the, the idea that we're not talking about the millionaires here. We're talking about the people who need to play sport. So taking to both sides, the account that obviously, first of all, there is the risk obviously of in, being, being infected, but also there's a risk of essentially not being able to feed yourself. Um, maybe not talk about Germany, but you know, in several other countries and even in Europe, we would say um, that, you know, it's people's livelihood at the end of the day. So how, yeah, how, how, how would you sort of justify this decision whether to play a, sport or not well there there every day and for mm. everybody and even without a pandemic there is a risk to lose your life sure. um and um and we live with it so so it's it's always about you know weighing certain risks against certain gains that's you know whenever you wake up and go to work you think ah there's traffic and there's, uh, I might catch something and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, so a risk-free world is unthinkable. Um, which means I can, even if I would like to say health comes first yeah. and you cannot really risk health for something as um, whimsical as football, <laughs> Um, so uh, that's I think that is is a general truth. But on the mm -hmm. other hand, if you really want to stick consistently to that argument, we don't do anything anymore, sure, because it might be unhealthy. And if you look around into our everyday lives, you know, people go out for a beer in the park with many many friends because they need this. I don't know, interaction and so on, running the risk of um, spreading coronavirus. Um, and that's probably not very yeah, morally sound, but it's part of our life. So I can understand the decision that people want to continue engaging in sports even under these conditions. So the question is actually one of, can we create conditions under which the risk 
is somehow manageable. Mm-hmm. Mm. And from what, I, what we've seen with reopening the leagues, yeah. I would say if you look at the amount of cases that have really been identified and the treatment of these and so on, mm-hmm. I would say, yes, it's okay to restart the leagues and to yeah. have sports under these conditions. This second question would be how much money does it cost? And is sure. it, does it really make sense to invest so much money into this activity, even though there are other, I don't know, even if we keep universities closed down? Aren't universities yeah. more important than football? Well, some say, some might look at it from different angles. But, mm-hmm. um, um, but then the question comes, if it's private money and we're in a market society and the private money from the German Football League and the German football clubs goes into these hygiene concepts and rerunning this, and it makes sense because their uh, contracts with broadcasters make it necessary to do this, it should be okay. Mm. And then we run into the question, how much government money should be going into Absolutely. that? And that's, that's a tough one. Not yeah. so much, I would say. So, so the simple answer is yes, then. Is that yeah. it? Is right <laughs> the, the answer is <laughs> yes, but don't spend, <laughs> spend all the good government money on it. Absolutely. But yeah, as, as you said as well, like, yeah, to, to open up the season to also like save the clubs and save the, the lease and the economy. And, but then, because there was a lot of talk of like, yeah, we need to reopen as, as soon as possible in a safe way. And then the question about testing because mm. in the pandemic, because in the beginning of the pandemic, people like we were told like, yeah, you should only get tested if you're sick. We don't want to put too much pressure on the hospital. So don't, so it was hard to get tested as a regular person. But at the same time, these leagues is like, oh, we have to test the players. Like a lot of times we need to like, if for the players, it seemed that there was a, like infinite amount of testing going on just to be able to open up the, the league. Do you see like a contradiction there is like that sport is treated in a special way and is that a, is that a problem? I, I, I have read in the, in the newspapers that this was part of the discussion, whether it was a special treatment of sports. I wouldn't read it that way. I would, um, I would say it's a special treatment of um, organizations with money. I, I, I would see that as part of a market society. Um, any organization probably that would have brought in the money because they want to run their affairs and have bought enough test kits would have gotten them. And they would have, I mean, we have seen US federal states bidding each other up in buying up test capacities. Um, and it leads again to the question, is, is market the right tool to steer this? Or is this actually a question that needs a political decision and a political right. distribution? Um, which it wasn't at the time, at, at least not here. Um, and I, I, th- I think there are strong arguments to be made that this if you have a scarce resource like testing at the time um, and you need it in your general health uh, system, then there is maybe no good argument to be made that the EFA can buy up these tests and, uh, and they have scarcity within the, the general system. No, that shouldn't be the case. I guess the German case wasn't that bitter in this respect. Probably the British case was worse. Uh, and probably the U.S. cases were just terrible. Um, 
And um, yes, and, and you can argue for intervention and political decisions to do that differently. Um, and, and that sport has to wait until the general system runs properly. Adding to that and much more to the point of how testing works and, not, and doesn't work, I would say, if we look at nowadays, like testing everybody who comes from holidays uh, with symptoms or without symptoms and so on, and then running into next week and saying, oh, we run into problems with our testing capacity, maybe we should reduce it. Political decisions are not always very helpful either. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so, so this is a it, there is a learning curve in in uh, in treating the, this, but I guess this learning curve is also better in a run by society and politics mm -hmm. than it would be by the money distributions and people being tested because they can afford it. Absolutely. No, we're just sort of working off that point quickly before Carl steps in. Um, it seems to us obviously that very apparent that um, this market-oriented sort of way that sport is going hasn't worked and the pandemic has exposed it absolutely and from what you say you certainly see a, a, a different type of future um, for sport at all levels because of this pandemic what what does that look like in your opinion or or how how does sort of sport evolve from this this episode mm. Yeah, you know, um, everything you what say about it? the future is usually wrong. <laughs> but um, we're going to um, give it a try at least. Yeah, yeah, certainly. <laughs> um, well, the first thing that we see is that it has given additional power to athletes. If, where they didn't have it, they themselves probably have found out a bit more about that this sport relies on them and that they can use this in a way probably sports people have found out, out about the idea of strike in a weird manner because this just not going to work wasn't really <laughs> something before, but yeah. uh, it seems to come to their minds. And the One idea of- later than most. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably, <laughs> yes. And, um, and the, the idea of forming associations and of you using the public for collective representation and th that has gained some momentum mm. and that, that has a potential of changing the sports world. Um, what we also mentioned is it has shown some of the financial instability of, of the whole system and how, how it is run. Um, and the need and the fundamental dependence on the, of the sports sector on some government or state intervention. These are all things that run exactly counter to the vision that we've had, I don't know, five years ago. Mm. Um, so, but what I what I think is it will probably not shift the whole system into a totally new one, uh, at least not in a short term. No. Um, but it will push the balance a bit away from a completely from a quickly running into over commercialization and uh, and maybe give a few more breaks and a few more institutional embedding factors to it i can see that at least that this yeah. might happen and and a few things you can see in an early stage like um, the german olympic athletes fund has introduced uh, social security possibilities for athletes very recently okay. as an option and not creating a real labor law working contract because that would be very difficult for them uh, 
in terms of tax payments and legally difficult to construe but um, but the, the the option of having something like an old age pension scheme and having something like so that that is an improvement and I think it's hard to differentiate whether it's COVID or whether it's the formation of the German athletes associations or whether this all comes together into mm -hmm. something um, but this is a step in a different direction uh, and um, and I mentioned the decision about the Olympics and their postponement. Um, also, I see there is a step in that direction. I see it more, I think, in the Olympic sphere than in the pro team sports sphere. Okay. I, I, I've heard a bit more about the German football players associations than I used to, but not in the sense that I would think okay that's a giant step that they're taking now sure. but if it's much more like oh the broader public somehow recognizes that they exist um if you're looking across the border i'm i'm not i'm not really aware of so much in this direction but i but but in general i think there there are these small steps in such a direction and that might change things but Markets and commercializations are strong, and and the idea that in half a year's time we might have um, a vaccine and uh, and things can be run just the way they were before, and people might think, well, maybe even transfer payments uh, go back to the heights that we've seen, and um, we can make real money now and and make up for the things we lost. Um, might just push for another round of stronger commercializations and um, and a heating up of this kind of market again. It's hard to say which way yeah. it will go. I guess I guess we won't see sort of um, minimum wage for footballers um, across the globe then anytime soon. No, and we won't see Neymar not being sponsored by um, the Qatari state anytime soon. Probably not. Okay, <laughs> unfortunately not. But yeah. We can all hope. Yes, yes, we can. Okay. We can. Um, no, on that note, um, Till, thanks very much for being with us. Um, yeah, but just you. to yeah, just to finish off, um, often we like just a, a fun question, um, just to sort of personalize it a bit more. And and this week we've chosen to ask because we know you're your big Werder Bremen supporter, and obviously you know <laughs> they did just about okay this season to survive. Um, what what was your first experience um, being a football fan, and, and why did you sort of choose Werder Bremen as your team? My first experience as a football fan. My first experience as a football fan is from a time where I was not a Werder Bremen fan because oh, really? I was I was uh, six years old and um, <laughs> living in the region here. And because everybody was a Cologne fan, I was a Cologne fan too. And my dad took me to the stadium, the old Müngersdorf Stadium that <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And we went there. And my dad had forgotten his money. So we just stood outside of the stadium. It was one of those old concrete bowls and uh, it looked like nothing special to me at least. And the most impressive thing about it was that there was a, I guess, I don't know, 17-year-old punk who was jumping across the fence and going inside. And I recommended that to my dad, but he didn't want to. That was my first football fan experience. And then we went home. That's a that's a very cool. One. I think we might have to edit the part out about you being a Werder Bremen fan just to keep the story. And and then I think two years later or so, at that time Bremen had just been relegated to second division, and then they came back up, and then they had a spell of really good seasons. Yeah. 
and they they were playing um, quite attractive um, football back then and successful and that's when I picked Werder Bremen um, as as my team and I stuck with it I mean you fall in love at a certain point in time and you yeah. curse it at times but if you just can't get off it anymore and so I stuck with it oh thank you very much I know uh, yeah this is all probably a lesson for all, all the fans out there stick with it stick <laughs> yeah, with your team yeah. now no matter how good or bad they're doing. Exactly. I was I was teaching my son when when it wasn't clear whether we stay in the first division last <laughs> at the end of last season that he, he cannot get off it now. That's impossible. That's not being a fan. No. That's you can do that if you're a Bayern Munich supporter, but apart from that, you can't. It's it's easy to cheer for your team when when you're in good times, but the true fans comes out and cheer for in the bad times. So yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Again, thanks a lot, Till, and uh, yeah, um, so really looking forward to, to to speaking to you again, hopefully in the future, and yeah, seeing your thoughts on how how labor rights of athletes hopefully evolves um in the in the right direction. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, and thanks for having me. So that was our interview with uh, Till Miller Show. Uh, talking about the labor market and especially about the labor rights for athletes and I thought it was a very productive conversation it's very interesting but it's a very complex topic so it can be quite heavy but what did you take out of this uh, John? Mm, I think first of all it's one of our longer conversations with one of our guests um, and as, as you said rightly Carl it is very very complex um, and especially when it's got to do with you know um, labor rules and laws and the European um, level competencies is always complex. But the main thing that I took away from what Till spoke to us about was the idea that um, professional sport and mega clubs, I'm talking about in particular, and these big um, organizations cannot solely exist as a commercial entity um, you know, without the society which they exist in. They, they can't take decisions independent of the local governments which they, which they are in and in the states and things like that. Um, as, as Till mentioned, I think one thing which really stood out, I think for a lot of our listeners as well probably, was the fact that he spoke to someone at the DFB, um, which is the German Football Association, and the person um, who spoke to him mentioned that the DFB would go bankrupt by the end of 2020 if football didn't restart. Um, again in the year so it's it's a it's it's a wake-up call to i think the powers that be but to supporters as well it just shows how how fragile the foundation of what we watch every week is yeah yeah it's it's i thought that as well it just shows that how unstable uh and fragile uh, sports can be in this market that just after a couple of months they're like yeah we need to get back uh to play we need to because we rely so much on these tv contracts especially the big leagues like bundesliga uh, premier league la liga uh, champions league as well like that's where the money comes from and if they don't have that money then yeah then they go broke and where do they ask money from yeah it's from 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 the government at least uh, i can see it in germany but in sweden in sweden as well has been the, that there's been a lot not a not a bailout but it's mm -hmm. been money that's been pumped in from the government into the sports sector just to help them survive. Absolutely. And I think linking into this also is the fact that 
and I talk about this from a European perspective, um, sport labor unions are so much less or so much yeah less developed compared to um, other industries. And I think what Till mentioned, the fact that only now in this pandemic, people are starting to sort of talk about collective bargaining in Europe, particularly in, in you know, the most popular sport in Europe, which is football. So many other sports as well um, across the continent. And the fact that, you know, you contrast that with normal trade unions, which have existed since the 18th century, you know, it shows how, how far sport is um, from giving their workers, if you can call them workers, um, a voice and a say in, in the decisions that, that are taken. Yeah, and on that, I have, I have two points. So first of all, it's, I would say it's a quite foreign view. Like if you look for, from an American's perspective mm-hmm. to look at trade union, union or like labor unions, because labor union has been such a big part of the sports in the US, especially for the big leagues uh, with uh, collective bargaining and uh, making sure that the, the players' rights are secured. And yeah. that's why I also can see you've had lock, uh, lockouts Sure. Uh, you, you have shut down the whole season because they haven't been able to come up with a new deal. Uh, you've seen it in NHL, you've seen it in NBA and NFL as well. So mm-hmm. that's one point. And another point is this power relation because you become more of a, you represent yourself more on an individual basis, especially yeah. in, in, in individual sports. So the ones that have a lot of power can represent themselves and can uh, voice their opinions and voice their concerns, while the ones that are maybe less known around the world don't really have that power to uh, express their concerns absolutely absolutely right and i think the next thing which i think to look forward to probably um in the future of 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 labor rights which links into what we've just talked about you know with till and and in in this sort of um post commentary is the fact that yeah the pandemic has essentially given an impetus to athletes' rights simply in sport. Um, and the way in which this will move forward is interesting to sort of um, to see for all of us and to see whether or not, you know, collective bargaining becomes a thing in European sport. As Carl rightly mentioned, it's existed in American sport in all the franchises for a long time now. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not like a new modern phenomenon globally. It's just in European sport and in, in the sport which is watched by Everyone around the world, football that or soccer, um, that hasn't really you know come to fruition. So yeah, I, I guess I guess essentially like I'll I'll take out from this is I think from Till's perspective anyway is that um, a new athlete's labor rights standard or agenda has been set in many ways because of this pandemic. Um, at least there's there is a, a dialogue that that is starting to take place, and yeah, at the end of the day. People need jobs um, and athletes are often paid for their work and therefore they need to keep their jobs as well. And, and yeah. they need to be able to bargain for it. They need to be able to you know, be at the table where their wages and their rights and, and their health is discussed. Yeah. yeah, and another aspect that we probably didn't really talk about with Till, but also because when it comes to, uh, for example, like paternity leave or maternity leave in sports, because that's... Is something that is is it's like a stable in many jobs and mm. uh, in, in job market, but paternity leave and maternity leave is not really hasn't been that common in sports because you, you can't like yeah you probably yeah you stop your athletic career so you basically have to cha- uh, choose to get a family or yeah 
Your athletic career. Yeah, career, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's getting more and more into that they have more rights. At least in Sweden now, they've been talking about like yeah, paternity and maternity leave in sports. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm not familiar, obviously, with all the systems in the world and, and the the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. paternity yeah. or maternity coverage. But I think when you look yeah. at sports in general, you can hazard a guess in saying that, especially in individual individual sports for women. Um, let's say in tennis, for example, it's a luxury to take. 18 months out of the sport and you know Serena Williams is able to do it yes mm. because she's you know a multi-millionaire yeah. um, but what about the other ones the semi-professional ones the ones that are ranked 500 in the world you know even mm. the professional ones struggle to take time out because simply because yeah they can't afford to mm. and and therefore it's a choice between professional career or, or, or motherhood and in many other industries which is which are you know becoming more and more progressive you can do both but not in sport so that's something which I think um, needs to be probably considered more as we move forward and i guess on that note we'd like to thank you all for your support um four episodes in we hope that you're listening in not simply out of pity we hope you're taking something away with you and we hope you're enjoying it as much as we are making it we've had a relatively decent response so far and yeah please let us know what you think on the social media platform of your choice uh and Yeah, until next time. Peace and love. Peace and love.